The goal was more than just writing poems. The goal was healing. When the American poet C. A. Conrad had to face the murder of their boyfriend and the indifference of the police, they turned to rituals. I took a crystal that he gave me the last time I saw him alive, and I would put it under my hair wrap, and I would swallow a smaller round crystal, and it worked immediately. Conrad quickly discovered not only the healing powers of rituals, but also their ability to create a poetic language. The language that comes out for such a ritual is ecstatic. You're listening to the Louisiana Literature Podcast. I'm Pike Malinowski. C.A. Conrad lived through this tragedy and now believes that the healing power of poetry rituals is available to all of us. I've worked very hard at healing myself through my poems and the rituals, and I believe that poetry has the strength and the power to do this for everybody. Follow C.A. Conrad into a world of rituals, monkeys, queer bubbles, and a belief in the endless creativity that lives in all of us. In this interview from 2018. When you died the way you died, it was contaminating. A new danger of being lost and insecure. But reality can never be avoided forever. At the same moment, who is afraid of whom? The killers or my beloved? Or guilt of my continued song? Desiring is not what we achieve, it's a knife off uncovering the wrong way or racking it in the alchemy of a mood. I should never trade youth for poetry's residence of aging, but I can put every poem I ever wrote in a pile and burn them if you would appear on the other side. In my latest book of rituals and poems, the goal was more than just writing poems. The goal was healing. I had a boyfriend uh, years ago who I met doing ACT UP demonstrations within the 80s. And then he was a little burnt out from all the activism and went to Tennessee to work in gardens and to, to get his life back together again. And while he was down there, he was meditating in a cave. And we don't know who did this, but somebody tied his ankles and wrists together tortured him and raped him and then covered him in gasoline and burned him alive. And the police covered it up. The police have never bothered to really investigate. There's been a documentary made about me. We even went back down to Tennessee in the film and the police maintained their position. Although the paramedics, the doctors, the coroner, the death certificate claims this is a homicide. It's obviously a homicide. But it, the problem really came from the police. I mean, I was depressed as, as it was about his murder. But then the police treated me very badly and it, and, it, and it sent me in a spiral, downward spiral. So I believed that I could do a, a ritual for poems that could drag me out of that depression. So that's what this first ritual in the new book is. The new book is called While Standing in Line for Death for that reason. Just honoring the fact that to think every single day while you're alive that you're going to die. And to do that in order to appreciate the day better. We waste so much time and then we see people often at, at an older age 
realizing that they wasted the time. So I want to live a life without any regrets. And that's not easy to do in this world, I believe. But I think that I'm on my way toward that. This ritual helped me regain my standing on the ground in this world, on this planet. It's been a difficult time, but I feel healed now. And the ritual was, I took a crystal that he gave me the last time I saw him alive, and I would put it under my hair wrap, and I would swallow a smaller round crystal, and it worked immediately. Well, within a few days, which is immediate to me, considering that I was inside this depression for so long. It was a relief, an absolute relief. And I was also very happy with the poems as a result. And I've been much happier ever since that ritual. The ritual also, this ritual to cure my depression also involved sitting in the woods and watching. It was in the, it was in the autumn. It, was, it felt like the perfect time to do this ritual when everything's changing to go to sleep for the winter. And I, because I thought, well, this, is, this was good. I wanted to be awake for the winter for the first time in years after this depression. So I would sit in the woods and stare at a, sh a tree far away from me. And I would stare at it. And all of a sudden, I could see all the leaves falling at once. That was the goal to get my, all my visual pattern to see the leaves falling at once. That's a meditation that really pulls me deep inside myself, that kind of meditation. And the, the language that comes out for such a ritual is ecstatic. It makes me very happy. But I also have to say that I would also sleep with this crystal under my pillow. And I was supposed to do that for 27 nights, but I only did it for nine because the dreams were so violent where I was killing his killers. And I would never kill anybody. I have no, I'm not a violent person, but I'm killing the killers and and then I would wake up feeling better, like it was an exorcism, like it was taking all these demons out of me. And after this ritual was finished, I've been feeling terrific and taking better care of myself and enjoying my life. So what I do is, this is not documentary poetics, I'm writing as fast as I can. I'm not even thinking about what I'm writing. I'm trusting my body in the space where I'm at, keeping this extreme present nailed down so that I'm in it. And if I catch myself following a thread or a full sentence, I write faster because I want to get ahead of that. That internal editor is invaluable later on for shaping the poems, but it gets in the way of the raw notes. In fact, it's only the notes that are beyond the thinking. That magical cruising altitude that I get into with it, that's where all of the language for the poems comes from. I have these little poems in the book that they're, I call them the remains. So I wind up having, from a ritual, maybe 12 or 13 pieces of printout paper from the copier filled, single-spaced. But the poem is very tiny. So I will only use 1 to 2% of the language to make the poem. The rest I discard. Your rapists were the last to taste you in this world. Their breath and terror down your neck keeps me up at night. But which page of the Bible says to burn the faggot after you force him to give you your pleasure? Each time I drink water dropped from clouds, water they burned out of your body, I cut my hands to catch you. In the revenge dream I behead one of them, spell your name on my face with his blood. 
the other is begging as I choke him, his neck as soft as your neck. I pull him off his knees, check for tattoos. Is it him? Is it you? I miss you. I love you. Ritual, the interest in rituals for me comes from my childhood. I grew up in uh, an area of Pennsylvania in the United States called Boyertown. It's a Pennsylvania Dutch community. So they're Germans from centuries ago who have settled there and they actually speak a, a dialect of German that hasn't been spoken in centuries. And there's a lot of the old world magic that came with them, make Seder formulas, finding water with divination, things like that. So I've always been fascinated by it. But it wasn't until years later when I had friends who were dying of AIDS in particular, I started going to pagan gatherings to learn about healing herbs and other things. And but that, that's where it really settled in for me. But the rituals that I do for my writing came long after that. So the town where I grew up in Pennsylvania is an old factory town. I wanted nothing to do with the factory, so I, I ran away as a teenager to Philadelphia to be a writer. That's what I always wanted to be. And I felt great about that decision. But then in 2005, I went back to where I grew up for a family reunion. And it was on that train ride home that I realized I turned everything into a factory. The, fact, the factory was in me. So I stopped writing for the better part of a month. And then I woke up one morning and made a list of the problems with the factory. And one of the things I'd written on that list was the inability to be present. I realized that's the biggest problem with my family. They, 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 they literally cannot be present because they're extensions of machines most of their waking hours and their work days. And so they're either anxious about the past or depressed about the future, or the other way around maybe. And they don't know how to shut that off when they're not working. So it's on all the time. And I thought that's where these rituals should go. So I started creating the rituals to find myself in a place of extreme present. So that I was, I was not thinking about the past or the future, I was only thinking about exactly where I was and what I was doing to write these poems. 23. Another poet apologizes at a microphone, weakening the hull of our ship. If you can't believe in your poems, leave them at home until you learn to deserve them. This poem, this poet, will not apologize. I'm tired of smelling my dead boyfriend, his swimming arms lost to my bed. It hurts to admit I love being alive. I broke, and those pieces broke, and those pieces crushed to powder. Things to avoid saying around me. Take it like a trooper. Stiff upper lip. Keep it together. Don't let your mouth say these things. Don't let your comfort be selfish cruelty. Let them shriek. Let them sob. Don't be a coward about love. So the other thing about this book, so I, I wanted to cure my depression, but then I also had other goals in mind. There are many dozens of anti-lesbian, gay, transgender laws coming up in the United States right now for this election coming up. But there's been one that 
has existed for a few years in North Carolina. And when I was, I moved down there and was confronting this in the streets doing activism. And I got a little tired of all of the yelling. And so what I did was I started doing poetry rituals. And this book contains three political action rituals for poetry. And what I did in the fir this first one is called Power Sissy Intervention Number One, Queer Bubbles. I went to a very busy street corner on a Saturday afternoon in Asheville, North Carolina. And I took a big jug of bubbles, you know, children's bubbles that you would blow, very colorful bubbles. And I sat on a, a low chair, so I was eye level with the children. The children were loving the bubbles. They were enjoying them. And their parents would walk over. They were a little concerned about me because I looked odd to them. And when their parents would walk over, I would say, these are queer bubbles and they're going to make your children queer. Not gay and lesbian, but queer, meaning that they're going to be healthy, happy, revolutionary queers. They're going to put an end to racism, misogyny, transphobia, and help change this world for the better. A few of the parents thought it was funny or interesting and said, well, I'll love my children no matter what they do. But almost all of the parents were very upset and would grab their children and pull them away, uh, screaming, the kids would be screaming because they wanted to play with the bubbles. And as the parents walked away, I would, and they would, keep saying, they would keep saying to me, sorry, I'm sorry, while they're walking away. And I said, why are you sorry? I mean, I want to know what you're sorry about. So that was the ritual. It, was, it felt very productive in many ways because this law called the HB2 law in North Carolina was causing so much violence against queer people and it seemed like nobody was really doing anything about it. And I just, any conversation you can have in a, an environment like that is good. So the notes for the poem became this poem titled, Every Feel Unfurl. I really like the shape of this poem too. I like how it comes together. I was naked on a mountaintop, kissing someone who loved me, people fully clothed 9,000 feet below. As crossed out as this cage I say I belong to no more, the stars let me off the hook again. This is so new I don't get it, hear myself sing with a voice I do not recognize. The best voice to happen to me, I want it back each night. There is nothing little about little lights in the sky. Now the pronunciation is perfect for another morning of lips performing their duty to verb, shrouding ourselves by light of damage control stations of rhetoric, lips as piglet prepared to be hacked apart beneath a greenery of mansions, a mess the ambulance cannot reach. There is nothing little about the cicada revving up while we think our car horns are so impressive. I tap into everything around me. The thing, the thing that I, I love about the rituals isn't, isn't so much about what I'm tapping in within myself, although that is true. It's the ability to see that everything around me all the time that's around me has creative viability. You can't really see that until you're present. Our lives are so hectic and there's so much chaos in the world and we're driven by routines work, oh well, whatever we, we need to do to get by in the day, that we often don't have that space, or we think we don't. But I believe that everybody could. I think everybody should develop some kind of creative practice in their everyday world. 
because creative people are the survivors. Creative people are the ones who are going to figure out the problems that we have facing us. We have, we have problems facing us that no other time in human history people have had to worry about. We've lost 60% of all the wild creatures on the planet. In the past 25 years, Europe has lost 75% of the flying insects. These are crucial, urgent problems. You have vegetables that need to be pollinated. You have uh, the soil and the air and the birds. Everything's being affected by this. It's a, like a, an avalanche of, it's just this avalanche of death happening right now. And we have to figure out how to stop it. I believe that the more creative you are, the more likely you're going to be able to figure out what the solutions are. It's not just science. You need to be creative. It's the creative mind. Einstein said that creativity is more important than, the imagination is more important than knowledge. Meaning that we need to have a new way of thinking and looking at things and to stop replaying the old paradigms because they're not working. The old ways are why we're here. This next ritual is titled Monkey Grass and it's dedicated to my friend Divya Victor. She's an extraordinary poet who was born in, and raised in Singapore and then came to the United States and then went back to Singapore to teach. And while she was there, she invited me to come and teach for a week. I, I was very excited about this opportunity in, in many ways. One of the, the things I was excited about was that I had never seen wild monkeys before. And I wanted to do a ritual about zoos and how I feel about zoos. I don't like zoos. I believe that zoos are nothing more than prisons where all the prisoners have never seen a lawyer. And they live and die in these, these places. It's horrible. So what I did was in the United States before I got on the plane, the day before I got on the plane, I went to a zoo with a celestite crystal, which is a pale blue crystal. That crystal opens up your throat chakra, your third eye, and your crown chakra. So I needed a crystal that was going to open up all of the communication skills for these monkeys. And I took this blue stone into the monkey house in the zoo, and I just immediately just felt terrible because there are all these parents with their little children, and the children don't know any better, and they're enjoying it, and they're eating their candy, and looking at the monkeys, and laughing. Meanwhile, the monkeys have this anxiety all over their bodies and faces, and they're even angry at one another because they're so hard. They're just, their lives are awful. They've got their painted rocks, and it's just absolute misery. So what I did was I, I set the crystal on the ledge of the glass where they were, and they were immediately fascinated by this crystal. And they came over, and they were, like, looking at it. And after a while, I then put it in my pocket and left with a few blades of grass growing outside the monkey house. And I took the grass and the crystal with me to Singapore. And while I was teaching throughout the week, I was looking for wild monkeys. I had heard from my friend Divya that there was a monkey on campus that her husband saw frequently, but I never saw that monkey. I saw two other monkeys at one point who were grooming one another. And people were taking selfies with the monkeys. That's how I actually found the monkeys, by seeing these people. And I put the crystal down on the grass with some melon slices that I had taken from the cafeteria to feed the monkeys. And they were eating the melon, and then when the crystal was exposed, the one monkey touched the crystal and immediately was alarmed and upset and ran, was screaming. 
because I think that that message from the incarcerated monkeys was in that crystal. And she was very upset, running around. And lucky for me, the other monkey was there to calm her down and hug her. And I felt awful, actually, about that because I didn't, I don't know what I was thinking. I actually didn't imagine that it was going to be that upsetting, but it was. So then I was writing my notes and I went back to my faculty apartment. I made my beans and rice and I was sitting down to watch the news. There's one a channel of news in uh, Singapore called Channel Asia News that's in English. So I was watching the news. I thought that I thought that my ritual was finished. And then there is a Japanese reporter saying into the camera, the chimpanzee Cha-Cha has escaped from the zoo today. And then the camera shows this chimpanzee up on the telephone pole stretching and laughing and just enjoying freedom. And then you see the crane come up with these two men inside of it with yellow helmets and a rifle and they shoot a tranquilizing dart into Cha-Cha's shoulder. And Cha-Cha turns around and screams at the men and then becomes lethargic and falls to this net. And they wrap Cha-Cha up and put Cha-Cha in a van and take Cha-Cha back to prison again, zoo. So I put my rice and beans down and grabbed my notebook and started writing notes again because I realized the ritual wasn't over. It was unbelievable that that actually happened like that at that moment. And in the book, I actually I even have a link for people to go to to, to see about cha-cha. So I have a quote that begins this ritual from the, the writer Alice Walker. The animals of the world exist for their own reasons. They were not made for humans any more than black people were made for whites or women for men. So this poem is titled, This is not the master, it is the lost visitor. Skylinking skin, the moon heaves tide of tears in a new direction. Potted flowers sitting on other side of war intact. Rereading my first poetry notebook, excitement of surrendering to the spirits is what remains. Looking and listening with the dead who unlace my syntax. Cooked to the bone, a copy of the poem for the defense, another for the prosecution, aiding and abetting my absorption of more than the allowable amount of light. Borders, spirits have told me, are flesh in every way to be transgressed as champion and traitor alike. It excites me so much to get up in the morning and do these rituals. It's my whole life. And it has deeply affected me, this creating this space where I'm present. It's affected everything that I do. I mean, yes, I've cured myself of depression with it and I'm doing political actions with it. But it's helping me see that every, literally everything around me is alive in some way. And I think the thing that I love the most is that it makes me appreciate every, everything all day long. And how I'm present all the time now for the first time in my life. And it's because of these rituals. The power of the rituals for changing my life in a way is that I do them every day. And in doing that being focused on the present, it's, it, I'm present for everything all the time. For instance, I was in Marfa, Texas on a residency. I love Marfa, Texas. 
And I was doing a ritual that I called Marfa Poetry Machine and 36 Rituals, where I did 36 rituals a day for 36 days. I went to the post office at one point because they don't deliver mail. It's such a small place. You have to go to the post office. And while I was about to enter the post office, a car pulled up playing the radio very loud. And it was a song from my childhood called Band of Gold. It's a pop song. And I stood there listening to the song. I hadn't heard it in many years. And I was thinking, oh, that's what the lyrics are. And what are those musical instruments? Is that, you know, trying to figure out, suss out all the nuances of what's going on inside that structure of that song. And then the song was over and I went to the post office and went about my day. And later on that evening when I was making dinner, I realized how important that was. Because if I had heard that song before I started doing these rituals back in 10 years ago or whatever, I would have been hooked and dragged into nostalgia, thinking about my childhood. I wasn't interested in doing that at all. I was present for that song in a way that I think I probably would have never been if I didn't live my life the way I'm living it right now. The thing about being creative is that it gives you the opportunity to see your life and the bigger life around you. It gets you to see how you're a component of everything around you. And it makes you appreciate the world around you better. It makes you want to take care of it better. Because the more art helps you see how the world is connected to you, the less likely you are to pollute or do damage. I think that every single child can show us that everybody is creative. And we need to encourage that creativity in kids and to keep encouraging it. And I need the parents to also be creative with the children. When I was a child, growing up in that factory town, my grandmother had a shelf in her living room with pieces of artwork by all nine of her daughters and sons. I was obsessed with this, with this shelf because these are adults in my life. And when I was a very young person, at one point I asked my grandmother, I said, well, where's the artwork they're doing now? This is just when they're like four and five years old. Where this is their earlier period or whatever. And she was very cross with me and she said, they don't have time for art, they're busy working. And that was the end of that discussion. And I realized very young, as a young person that, oh, I'm living somewhere where this is not valued at all. Art is for children and that's it, you need to grow up. And that's, that's a problem. Listen, there are cultures on this planet, like Bali, the Balinese do not have a word in their vocabulary that's even close to the word artist. They don't separate artists out of everybody else because they assume we are all artists. The thing about history that needs to, that needs to be dealt with, I mean the teaching of history, we need to stop only teaching the last 5,000 years when the mistakes were made. War, it's all about war. What, we're, we, we mark history through wars. There are 30,000 years prior to that that we need to be talking about. There are 30,000 years of human life on this planet that were matriarchal and very different. We have a, the very first piece of human artwork that we know of is about 32,000 years old. It was found in a cave in France and it was a sculpture of a goddess. We have artifacts, we call them artifacts, but it's artwork from all that 30,000 years of history in museums. We can see it. And in that time period, there's not a single piece of art 
that has the name of an artist on it because the artist didn't name anything themselves and because everybody was an art, everybody was creative. Art became commodified and now the artist is more important than the art. But the fact of the matter is everybody's an artist, everybody's creative and we need to encourage that in everybody around us all the time. I, when I teach workshops, I get a lot, a lot of people who come up to me telling me that they are sad, that they haven't been creative for a long time. And when I work with them in particular, I want them to work on the things that are blocking them. And when I can get them to do that, and I can get them to work inside of a structure that is painful or overwhelming, maybe it's a routine that they have to do for their work or whatever's going on, if I can get them to write inside that structure, the thing that they, the place where they think they, they cannot, and they actually do it, their entire lives change. This next ritual is, is titled Hall of the Decommissioned Pantheon. It's one that was commissioned by the Pulitzer Foundation in St. Louis, Missouri. It was for an art exhibition they had called Art of Its Own Making. And what I did was I was, I, was, I was thinking they really wanted an ekphrastic ritual so that the people coming in to see the exhibit could write poems about the artwork. But I didn't like that because I don't like that tradition of poets praising art. So I thought, well, let me change this. So I did a little research reading about when uh, the Nazis were approaching Paris and to occupy Paris. And of course, Hitler and Goering and these other men, they really wanted the art in the Louvre. So, and, the, and the curators of the museum knew this. So they took great pains to get a lot of the most valuable art out of the museum into safety. The Mona Lisa in particular was given great care with a particular type of wood for the box and a red satin lining to protect the painting to get it out of into the countryside for safekeeping. So I created the ritual and saying several things. One of the things is that there, there is a war that has just broken out. The looting is about to begin. The looters are going to ransack the museum. You have an opportunity to save one piece of art. What are you going to save? Why are you going to save it? What do you like about it? What's the reason? And then I ask pe the people to then go into the bathroom, create a password by taking their favorite god or goddess and their favorite household appliance. For instance, Aphrodite microwave or Jupiter egg beater. And then you write the password on your body, your, your flesh, and then you go out into the museum and find a stranger and walk up to them and just whisper the password and walk away. I did this with the, the poet, uh, excuse me, with the artist Nicole Eisenman's work at the ICA in Philadelphia. It was, a, it was a thoroughly enjoyable ritual. I enjoyed it. And the poem that came out of it is called Poetry is Short for Kicking in the Door. Poems are animal, a poet for those dead before they die. Now that the present is so endangered, we can stop worrying about the future. Dear United States of America, I do not understand how many kinds of love exist, but we need every trickle to stop the hemorrhaging wounds we created in our sleep. 
If weaknesses tender solicitous kisses, I will be the weakest in the room. My puckering asshole made me a bride of poetry. Dirty the sheets with my animal, my delicious dirty animal. We walked a flight of stairs, walked and walked into stars until doors to other worlds appeared each step much brighter. It is good to be high maintenance outside your price range once in a while. A rush when Flint strikes a poem, making us so much older than last night. The burden and glory of poetry is in our fractures. We used to get rid of it, now we keep it as long as we can. Like the joy of dodging creditors. If strength is cruelty, apathy, and murder, I will collapse with another like me to suffer with flowers, so the brotherhood of concussions will not win. I've worked very hard at healing myself through my poems and the rituals, and, and since I know that it works, when I work with other people, I often work with people who are having troubles in their lives, and I want to work with them to also heal. I believe that poetry has the strength and the power to do this for everybody. C.A. Conrad visited Louisiana Literature Festival in 2018, where they were interviewed by Caspar Beck-Duc, who also produced and edited the interview. The Louisiana Literature Podcast is produced by Louisiana Channel. Original music for this podcast is made by Bob Pounding. Associate producer is Esther Kongstel. You can watch and listen to hundreds of other interviews with great writers and artists from all over the world at the Louisiana Channel. That's channel.louisiana.dk. I'm Pike Malinowski. Thanks for listening. <laughs>